we have in this particular portion of the Word of God certain names that have been mentioned by the Apostle of people who were valuable to him in the Lord's service. And in particular, if you look back, you will see that the first of those we talked about was the messenger, that's how we described him, Tychicus. He's mentioned in verses 7 and 8. And Paul talked about him as a friend and brother, but he also talked about him as a faithful minister, as someone who served the Lord with great zeal and with great profit. He's also described by Paul in terms of servitude. He's referred to as a fellow servant of Paul, but also one who was a fellow servant with Paul of their common master, Christ. And we mentioned various things about service. We talked about eight different New Testament Greek words that express the idea of service. There are those who are household servants, there are ministering servants, there are subordinate servants, there are confidential servants, there are public servants, there are temple servants, there are responsible servants, and there are bond servants or slaves. And each of these has its own Greek word. The thing about Tychicus is that he's referred to in verse 7 of chapter 4 as a diakonos, from which we get the word deacon, a ministering servant. But he's also referred to as a doulos, a bond servant or slave. He was not Paul's slave, but with Paul, he was a fellow slave in the service of the Lord. And after we talked about this particular man, we looked at the second character who we described as a faithful member. So as a faithful messenger, then as a faithful member. And he is Onesimus. And I refer to him as a member because Paul speaks of him in that way. Onesimus, who is one of you. In other words, what he's saying there in verse 9 is that Onesimus is a member of the church at Colossae, along with Philemon, who had been his master. He's worthy of note, not least because he's an outstanding example of what the sovereign grace of God can do in a man's life. We made this point, and we make it again, that Onesimus was the kind of character that nobody would have thought would ever be described as a faithful and beloved brother. Such was the kind of life that he was living. But such is the grace of God that even those who are profligate, who are prodigal sons, if you like, the Lord can save them and the Lord can make them into instruments in his service. Many wrote off the Apostle Paul, didn't believe at first that he was saved at all. And when he was converted, they found it hard to accept because of the life that he had lived. And maybe there's someone you could think about, and if they were to profess salvation, you'd be thinking, well, not too sure about that. But time would prove that it was the genuine article. And so it was with Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul. Onesimus was, first of all, to be described as a failure that was terrible. He was unprofitable. 
Uh, he was a criminal. He lived an unprofitable life. But the Lord saved him. The Lord granted to him a forgiveness that was total. And that's what the Lord does for us. He cleanses all of our sins away. doesn't leave one, not one, against our name. And so here's a man who's a sinner, but he's made into a saint, one of God's holy ones. And he's described as a beloved brother, a brother in Christ, a member of the family of God. He experienced a forgiveness that was total. And then we mentioned in the third place a faithfulness that was tremendous. Onesimus, the name, means literally profitable or useful. Of course, he was not living up to his name. Uh, he was denying his name by the way he lived. But then the Lord made him to be very profitable when he saved him, made him into a faithful man of God. Whereas his former life was useless, it was a waste. In Christ, his life proved to be useful both to God and to men. A faithful and beloved brother in the Lord. There may be some Onesimuses whom we know that we should be praying for, that the Lord would do for them what he did for this man. But we're now introduced to three individuals who are linked together. From looking at the faithful messenger and the faithful member, we want to consider what I would call the faithful missionaries. Three men who labored along with the Apostle Paul in the work of the gospel. He picks them out here in verses 10 and 11. They are Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus, which is called Justice. Three individuals who labored with the Apostle in the gospel. Now let's think of these missionaries one at a time. Notice, first of all, Aristarchus. Aristarchus is one that we could, we could describe as a man of great loyalty. He is actually referred to a number of times in the New Testament, several occasions. Uh, for example, if you turn back with me to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 19, there is mention made of this individual. Reading from verse 23, Acts chapter 19, from verse 23. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. That's another way of saying that there was a big event. A big, what they used to call in Scotland, stromash. If you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. There was a real problem. No small stir. And how did that come about? For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. Idolatry is a money-making racket. Always has been and continues to be to this day. I visited the city of Rome on one occasion many years ago with a friend. I remember going into a Roman Catholic chapel on the Isle of Capri. Beautiful place. But in that chapel, there were various sizes of candles. There were skinny ones, 
There were ones that were a bit fatter, and there were ones that were really fat. And under each of them, it had a price tag. The skinny ones were cheaper. The middle-sized ones were a little more expensive, and the big ones were more expensive still. And people would come and they would buy those candles and they would set them up and pray for the dead. There were boxes all around the side of the chapel. There was one box that was for St. Peter. And I wondered how he got the money. That always puzzled me. How Peter would actually get that money from that box that was set apart for him. All manner of things like that. Popery puts a price on everything. And not only do you pay while you're alive, you continue to pay after you're dead. Because masses that are said for the repose of your soul have to be paid for. That's right. Mass cards cost money. Hallmark makes lots of money out of cards. Of course they do. But mass cards are something that takes it to a different level. Idolatry is an expensive business. And here it was, a man is making little tiny shrines that were replicas of the temple to Diana. So people could have them in their own houses. And they could use them for their worship. Now let's read on. Verse 25 of Acts 19. It says, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, a whole bunch of them doing this, and said, sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. And I'd love to just describe priestcraft in that way. By this craft we have our wealth. That's the Church of Rome. But I go on, verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. He's telling people that these shrines are of no use, that they're not gods at all. They're of no value. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius, and look at this, and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. So we discover that Aristarchus, along with Gaius, was a companion of Paul. He served with the apostle. Aristarchus actually came from Thessalonica. He was a Jewish convert. And here he was, willing to endanger his life on behalf of the gospel. Because you will notice here that he didn't run away from controversy. He didn't say, I don't want anything to do with this Apostle Paul. He's trouble. We're not associating with him. He's going to get us into major difficulties. No. And if you go further to Acts chapter 20 and verse number 4, the Bible says, And there accompanied him into Asia, 
Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, there he is again, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. So when we look at Aristarchus, we find that he's a man who was loyal. He did not leave the Apostle Paul for an easier life. But he continued with him despite the very real prospect of trouble being brought into his life as a result. See, everywhere Paul went, there was trouble. Not because he wanted to cause trouble. Not because he was a rabble-rouser. But because the message that he preached cut right across the teachings and the practices of the heathen world. The Jews were against him. The Gentiles were against him. Because he preached Christ. And Aristarchus stood with Paul. We see those examples, Acts 19, Acts 20. Now let's go a little further to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, verse 2. And entering into a ship of Adramitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica being with us. See, there he is. He's still with Paul. He hasn't forsaken him. He hasn't run away. He hasn't said, no, Paul's trouble. I want to get away from him as far as I can. No, he's still ready to go with Paul. This time, from Caesarea to the city of Rome, where the apostle was being taken as a prisoner. That's what was happening here. He was being transported to prison. So like Timothy, of whom it says he wasn't ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, Aristarchus was not ashamed of the Lord. He could have easily sung if the, if the hymn had been written at the time, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord, nor to defend his cause. Maintain the honor of his word, the glory of his cross. That's the kind of man that Aristarchus was. He was not ashamed of the Lord, and he was not ashamed of the suffering people of God. He gladly took his stand with them. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Paul wrote to Timothy, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And that is something that Aristarchus did. He wasn't ashamed to stand with the suffering people of God. Don't we read that of Moses? Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses made a choice when he was come to years. He could have stayed in the palace with all the luxury and all of the benefits that accrued to someone who was taken as Pharaoh's daughter. He gave it all up to follow the Lord. He chose making a deliberate choice of affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know, there are many today and they don't want to be associated with the hated and despised servants 
of God. They don't want to belong to a church or be associated with a church that's not popular. They want to belong to somewhere that everybody thinks is wonderful. I recall when I was in high school, once in a while the teachers would ask the various kids in there what church they belonged to. And there was no reaction at all whenever they said belong to some Presbyterian church or some Baptist church or some Methodist church. But when I said I was a free Presbyterian, oh, oh, you could feel the, the antagonism. You could actually sense the hatred. Why? Because there was a certain big man associated with the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster who had a reputation in the country which many people didn't like. And anybody associated with him was referred to as a Paisleyite. So that's what I was. I was a Paisleyite. I was very happy with that, of course. I was quite content to be referred to as a Paisleyite. But there was, there was reproach. There was reproach belonging to the Free Church in Ulster. Why do you think that would be? Because it was a separatist church. It was a church that took a stand. It was a church that was against the apostasy and the Romeward trend in the major denominations. People didn't like it. There are folks who are not willing for the reproach of the cross. They want everybody to like them. And sadly, when you follow Christ, everybody's not going to like you. When you take a stand for truth, everybody's not going to like you. Look at Philemon verse 24. Again, you have this name in amongst these other names. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. There he is again, Aristarchus. One of the fellow laborers, a fellow worker. Now, there are some commentators who believe that Aristarchus' name implies that he was one of the so-called upper classes in Macedonia. For some reason, that name was associated with aristocrats. So he was someone who normally would be very well thought of, but who for the sake of the kingdom of God had renounced his place of prominence in the world to become one of the despised followers of of Jesus. My Bible tells me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, reading from verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the, the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The great preacher George Whitfield, the evangelist, had a friend who supported him financially and prayerfully. She was a noblewoman known as the Countess of Huntingdon. Her name was Selina. Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, a great friend of that preacher. And in reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, she said, she was so very glad that God did not say, not any, 
but not many. Notice that not many wise men, not many mighty, not many noble are called. She was a noble woman. She had blood running through her veins that set her apart from many other people as an aristocrat. But she said, I'm glad it doesn't say not any. It says not many. I'm one of the few. I'm so very glad that the Lord has chosen me. Now, Aristarchus was not what we might call a fair-weather friend. You know what a fair-weather friend is? As somebody who's friends with you while everything's going well, but if you become unpopular, they cut themselves off from you and they're nowhere to be seen. Fair-weather friend. They're not dependable. They're not loyal. They're only friendly for what they can get out of the friendship. But once that friendship ceases to benefit them, they want no part of it. Fair-weather friend. But that's not Aristarchus. He's described in verse 10 of Colossians 4 as a fellow prisoner. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. So there he was in jail, along with Paul. What for? What did he do? Well, he was there, temporarily confined, along with Paul. But I would suggest that it was by choice. Because he was able, as others were in that day, to engage in a voluntary captivity. He and others would live with Paul in his time of house arrest. They did that deliberately so that they could look after the apostle. It it involved them, in a sense, going to jail with him. That's why Aristarchus was there. He wasn't a criminal. He didn't do anything wrong, but he was there by choice because he was loyal to the apostle Paul. He was prepared to share in Paul's reproach in the suffering of Paul and indeed in the service of the Lord with Paul. Great man of God, Aristarchus. There's another missionary here, though, and his name is Marcus. See that in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. Marcus. Who's Marcus? Well, this is John Mark. You read of John Mark in the book of Acts, and he accompanied with Paul and Barnabas in the ministry for a time. He was later the penman, obviously, of the gospel that bears his name. The gospel of Mark. That's Marcus. And he's mentioned also, you will have seen, in Philemon, verse 24. His is the first name there, Marcus Aristarchus. Marcus. Now go back to Acts chapter 12. There's certain things you find out about Marcus, John Mark that are interesting. For example, he had a godly mother. He had a mother who loved the Lord. How do we know that? Because Acts chapter 12 and verse 25 tells us that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. You go back 
earlier in that chapter, however, to verse 12. And you have Peter, when he came out of prison, when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. See, this is the kind of woman that John Mark's mother was. She was hosting a prayer meeting in her house. She was a godly woman. Now come down into chapter 13 of Acts from verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, that this list of men, Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius and all, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And they, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Now remember, the last verse of chapter 12 tells us that Barnabas and Saul took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So he's gathered with them. He's traveling with them. Now chapter 13, verse 13. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Watch this. And John, this is John Mark, Marcus, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He just left the mission field. Took off. And abandoned Barnabas and Saul. And we know that he did that, because when you come to chapter 15, to the latter part of that chapter, in verse 36, it says that some days after Paul said to Barnabas, let's go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. That was his relative. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So you see here, Paul didn't want to take John Mark now with them because he had left the mission field. He was a failure. Young John Mark failed to make the grade. He failed to stick it out for some reason. He became a backslidden missionary. In the military, we would call him a deserter. A Christian soldier who went AWOL, absent without leave. And it's fair to say, reading the scripture there, that Paul wasn't best pleased with John Mark at that time. But John Mark's uncle Barnabas, blood's thicker than water. Some believe he was his cousin, but he was a relative. Took him to serve with him. And that's an interesting thing because from a situation where there were two missionaries, there were now four. So the Lord overruled. But we don't read anything else of John Mark until this time when Paul mentions him to the Colossians. Yet you will notice the affectionate manner in which Paul writes about him. Don't miss this. Colossians 4 verse number 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments, 
If he come unto you, receive him. See that? If he come unto you, receive him. He's speaking here positively about young John Mark. Somehow, some way, John Mark had regained the confidence of the Apostle Paul. And so I'm going to tell you that he is an example in the Bible of a failure made good. And I'm so glad that the Bible speaks in these terms about the Lord's people. You know, you might fail the Lord, you might get away from the Lord, you might do something that brings dishonor to the Lord, and yet the Bible tells us, and we're reading here 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse, if I can get the right verse here, verse 13. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. This time it's the apostle Peter, and he's referring to Marcus, it's the same person, John Mark, as my son. But even more significant are the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And remember that 2 Timothy is one of the last epistles, in fact it is the last epistle that Paul ever wrote. So this is toward the end of Paul's life. He's about to lose his life. He's about to be martyred. He's about to have his head cut off by Nero. But he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, Only Luke, or Lucas as he is elsewhere, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark, that's this Marcus, and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Boy, what a change. This represents. This is John Mark, the failure. This is John Mark who left the mission field. This is John Mark who Paul said, no, he's not going with us because he left us in the lurch. He's not coming with us, he said to Barnabas. This is the same John Mark, and he now says, bring him with you because he's profitable to me for the ministry. Mark had regained the confidence of the apostle Paul. The Lord gave him another chance, if I could put it that way. You see, our God is a God of second chances in service. We compare Jonah. We think of what happened in Jonah chapter 1. The Lord spoke to him, arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, "Mm -mm, no, I'm going the opposite direction. I'm not going to Nineveh, I'm going to Joppa. Direct polar opposite. I'm not going God's way. I'm going to get away from the presence of the Lord. Of course, the Lord took took a dealing with him. He's in the, the belly of the fish. He's vomited out onto dry land. The Lord uses him there at Nineveh. Because you see, he gave him another chance. And if you read Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, you will see, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Have you ever been there where you failed the Lord? And you felt like you were all washed up and the Lord would never use you again. And the Lord proved to you that he was willing to forgive you and to take you up as an instrument in his hand again. See, our God is a God of mercy and grace, of forgiveness and restoration. He's the God, we might say, of the second chance in service. And John Mark is a wonderful example of that. Do you know that he went on to write the gospel that bears his name? 
even though there was that time when Paul said, I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want them coming with us. See, God is merciful. Now, it should be remembered that while God does forgive the penitent one, there are, of course, in certain instances when we talk about ministry, things that would disqualify a man from re-entering the public ministry. That's another subject entirely. Because the testimony of Christ's church is critical. The Bible says a bishop must be blameless, not sinless, blameless. That means you can't throw mud at him and it will stick. But yet from John Mark, we see that the one who fails can be made useful again in the service of the Lord. That ought to encourage us. It ought to encourage us. Mark or Marcus. And the fact that he needed Paul's commendation would seem to suggest that at that time there were still some who stood in doubt of him. See, there were people who would remember that. Oh, he's the one that left. Remember, he went with Paul and Barnabas to the mission field and then he left, absent without leave. There were still those who would perhaps want to hold that against him. And so Paul's words would take care of that. And he's telling them, look, this man is profitable to me. Became a great missionary, again, for God. But after talking about this particular character, Marcus, there's a third one, and he has the name Jesus, or Justice. Now, obviously, we think of the name of our Savior, Jesus. The name is really in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, Joshua. And that's why, for example, when you read in Hebrews, in the chapter 4, it talks about Jesus giving them rest, and it's actually referring to Joshua in that instance. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, it's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. So the word, the name Jesus, is not a name that was given only to the Lord Jesus. And here's a man, he's referred to in Colossians 4 verse 11 as Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. Now you compare this to Acts chapter 1 and verse 23. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 23. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. Here's the, the value of comparing Scripture with Scripture. You perhaps never thought of this, that the Justice who's mentioned, that Jesus who is called Justice, is actually mentioned earlier in the New Testament in Acts chapter 1. You'll also see his name in Acts chapter 18 and verse 7. There it says, And he departed thence, and entered into a certain man's house, named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So here he is again, a worshipper of the Lord. But this title, Justice, it's actually really the just. That's what it means, the just. Jesus, the just. It was actually a title given to men 
because of their recognized integrity. When someone had that testimony, they were referred to as the just. That was a good thing. A testimony was given, therefore, as to the character of this man who's mentioned in Colossians 4. He's called Jesus the just, or justice, the just one. A just man was a description, of course, given to numerous characters in the Bible. Peter talked about how that just Lot was delivered from Sodom. It doesn't mean only Lot. It means Lot who was justified. Just Lot. The word signifies righteous or one who has been justified. And it's a wonderful title. It's a wonderful name. And it's a name that every believer can claim. Do you know that? You can be referred to as the just one because your sins have been forgiven and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account. So you are justified before God. Obviously, the name Jesus, as I've indicated, was a common Jewish name. In the Hebrew, it's the word Joshua. It means Jehovah is salvation or is Jehovah is Savior. But to us, there's only one Jesus, isn't there? How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and dries away his fear. Jesus, our Savior. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Jehovah is Savior, or Jehovah is salvation. But here's a particular individual who bore that name. He was given that name by his parents, Jesus, Justice. But do you know that in a sense all Christians are bearers of his name? That's why when someone asks you, are you a Christian? You'll answer in the affirmative if you're truly saved. Yes, I am a Christian. Don't you know that the name Christ is in that name? And Christian simply means Christ's one. You bear his name. That name was first given as a nickname. It wasn't a name that was claimed by God's people initially. It's a name that was given to them by others. You read that in Acts chapter 11 verse 26. And the disciples, the end of the verse says, were called Christians first in Antioch. They were called Christians. They were given that name by others. We are bearers of his name. Have you ever heard it said by a family, to a young man or to someone in the family, do not disgrace the family name. Don't bring disgrace to our name. We don't want our name associated with that behavior. Well, we as believers are bearers of the Lord's name. Let us be sure that we do not besmirch that worthy and holy name by the which we are called. We are Christians, Christ's ones. We belong to Jesus. So says that lovely hymn that was my dear wife's favorite. 
that we sang at her funeral. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Hallelujah. We bear that name. We wear it as a badge. I am Christ's one. But how sad that many in our day bear that great name. You ask them, are you a Christian? And they'll profess to be a Christian. They take it as a badge of a profession. But the reality is they have a name to live but are dead. Just because somebody tells you, I am a Christian, doesn't make it so. You have to be a Christian in order to deserve the name or the description Christian. And so here's a man, Jesus called Justice. He was a true believer in the Lord Jesus. And along with the other two mentioned here, the other missionaries, it was an encouragement to Paul. And I just want to finish with that. Are we an encouragement, not just to the Lord's servants, but to one another in the church? I think it was F.B. Meyer, the preacher, who was asked toward the end of his ministry when he was an old man, if he would do anything differently if he had his ministry to conduct all over again. And he said, yes, I would preach more on encouragement. I would preach more on, on encouragement. God's people need to be encouraged. And they need to be helped. And along with the other two that I mentioned here, this particular man, Jesus, that's called Justice, was an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. How do we know that? Verse 11 says, These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. That's these men, Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. That word comfort has to do with encouragement. So Paul's acknowledging this. These three men, these three alone, have been the only Jewish Christian fellow workers who had really been an encouragement to my heart. And sometimes in the work of God, we could have very few helpers. And even less who could ever be classed as a real encouragement in the work. Could we be described as these three missionaries were? A comfort unto the Lord's people, unto the Lord's servants. May the Lord help us to be helpers of the saints. You know, if you can't be an encouragement, don't be a discouragement. When I was a young preacher, I used to visit an elderly lady about once every six weeks. She was shut in, couldn't get out to church. And I remember I took a malady which is known as Bell's palsy. And it's a very debilitating thing. It's a paralysis of your face. So that if you took a line down the middle of my face, right down the middle of my nose, everything on this side didn't work. It just froze. And I remember when I was visiting this old lady, I was telling her about what had happened Oh, she said, my daughter-in-law had that, and you know, you never get over it. Really? 
You never get over it. Now, what an encouragement that was, eh? What a wonderful thing to say to someone. You never get over it. Now, I don't think she meant anything badly by that, but didn't exactly make me feel good that day. I've got something here. It's a paralysis of my face, and it's not going to go away. We want to be an encouragement to one another in the work of God. You're one of the best things you can say to someone, I'm praying for you. That is so encouraging. I'm praying for you. I've visited churches many, many times, particularly back where I call home still. And I've had people come to me and say, Brother, I pray for you every day. You've no idea how that makes you feel. What an encouragement that is. I pray for you every day. Bring you before the throne of grace every single day. That's a great thing. May the Lord help us to be an encouragement to others in the work. May the Lord help us to be fellow servants and those that are worthy of that testimony that we are Christ's ones. May the Lord help us for his name's sake. Amen.